Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Well, it's Veterans Week. Veterans Day this Saturday, November 11th. And I don't care if you're standing or sitting at home. you got to love some of the veterans in the NFL doing these days. I mean, you've got Adrian Peterson. He just ran for 159 yards and a career-high 37 carries. Uh, he's 32. Dwight Freeney just had two sacks. Uh, he's 37. And then, of course, Ron, there's Tom yep. Brady at 40. Yeah, at 40, doing what guys half his age could not. Uh, yes, he is. He's drinking two gallons of water a day, which guys <laughs> half his age do when they have a hangover. That's right. Uh, but, uh, you know, Freeney he arrived with some fresh legs, but I want to see what happens a month from now when it comes to him. And the same is to a degree, I think it's true with Peterson. As for Brady, the second half of the season plays out uh, like the first. There will be a water shortage in America. <laughs> You uh, you probably drink four or five gallons a day, Albert. I uh, know, but I'm drinking a lot of tea, trying to keep myself awake. Hey, Akusa, <laughs> I almost forgot. Um, there's 38-year-old Josh McCown, too. And, and he and the Jets are <laughs> defying the odds by not only, well, not tanking, by by winning half their games. Yeah, they're 4-4. Four and four. So who would have thought, huh? You know, I've known McCown from our days at the Combine together. He's a Texas kid. And about 10 years ago, I told him my goal was to see him in every Locker room in the NFL. He's <laughs> getting there. Close. The Jets are now his eighth team, and oh he's been a starter for most of them. And he is an underrated talent. You can win games with him, as the Jets are finding out. Yeah. Can you tell the difference between Josh and Luke McCown? Yeah, Josh is starting in the NFL. <laughs> One play well, for eight teams. Yeah, that's right. Eight teams. Well, to honor NFL veterans, present and past, we have a lineup today that includes former Bengals tackle Willie Anderson, who's a member of the Hall of Fame's preliminary class for 2018. Former 49ers center Jesse Sapolo, founder and chairman of the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame. That's right, the Polynesian Hall. I think I'd like to make that trip to Hawaii for an induction, guys. Um, anyway, the Polynesian Hall just announced his 2018 class, and we'll visit with Jesse about that. We also have one of my favorite people in this game, former NFL coach and general manager John McVay, who is the grandfather of Rams coach John McVay. Uh, Sean McVay. But that's not all. Hall of Fame voter and frequent guest John McLean of the Houston Chronicle stopped by to give us his thoughts on what's going on with the Texans in the city of Houston in the wake of the Astros World Series win and the Texans' loss of Deshaun Watson. That was, that was pretty tough, Goose, losing Deshaun Watson. Wow. Win a World Series, though. Takes the edge off it. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> We've got a lot coming up here, and all that is coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. To the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Wow, what a week last week was for the city of Houston. First, of course, the Astros win the World Series. Then the Texans lose quarterback Deshaun Watson, and they lost him, as you know, for the season. I'm not sure how all that is going over there, but I do know someone who is sure, and that's Hall of Fame voter and good friend of all of ours, John McLean of the Houston Chronicle. John. What's the temperature of sports fans in Houston these days? They up, they down, where are they? It's a seesaw of emotion. Last year, the euphoria, the Astros winning their first World Series, doing it on the road at Dodger Stadium, you know, going through the playoffs, beating the Red Sox, Yankees, and Dodgers. Three of our most storied franchises made it all that much sweeter. And uh, Plus, they're a really good group of guys, and they're built to last. And so people were really, really excited 
because fans here suffered through three consecutive years of 100-plus losses. And this year they had 101 victories, only second time in franchise history they've hit triple digits. So people were going crazy. They were planning a parade. It was estimated at a million. And then, boom, Deshaun Watson doesn't get hurt in a game. Gets hurt in practice, and uh, he tossed the ball to a back. He, he wasn't even going full speed. He bounced up and down a couple of times, then grabbed his right knee. And when they took him for uh, to the MRI over at the medical center, and they came back, and the players learned what it was, a pall was cast over Energy Stadium, as you can imagine, not just with the players and coaches and fans, but everybody in the organization because you know he was off to the greatest start of any rookie quarterback in history and he was a great kid he is a great kid so people were just crushed it's almost like they've been flattened by a bulldozer john you and i both know how important football is to the state of texas so who's bigger in Houston these days jose altuve deshaun watson or james harden oh jose altuve is because number one football is and i told people that if the Texans ever win a Super Bowl, and I've never thought they had a chance until I watched Watson lose 41-38 in Seattle, it made me realize no matter they're missing J.J. Watt, Whitney Merciless, and Brian Cushing, and all those players gone from last year, if he's there, they have a chance to beat anybody, home or on the road. And so now I think when he comes back, I wish I could fast forward and go to training camp because unfortunately, I got to watch the second half of the season <laughs> because he'll be 100%. They've got a lot of cap money they're going to spend. They'll have three number three picks, don't have a one or two. And uh, the team should be better. Plus, all these injured players will be healthy. So, unfortunately, they got to go for the second half of the season. And so, if they, if they ever win a Super Bowl, you could take the Astros. And rocket celebrations they've had here multiplied times about 10. You know, because as you guys know, we're a football state. People here have suffered a long time. Oilers coming close. We hadn't even had a team go to the AFC championship game since 1979 season. And as you guys also know, the longer you wait, the sweeter it is. But right, right now, uh, it's Jose Altuve. Everybody loves Altuve. You know, uh, before I ask this question, I, I must say, uh, I was at that 79 uh, game that the Oilers lost. And all these years of struggle you've had since, I think, if you believe in karma, that whole Houston Oilers, you know, that song was like, that song set you back 20 Love years. Love you, Blue. <laughs> Love you, Blue. I hated that song. <laughs> like the cheerleaders, I hated that song. Uh, but I see you've signed uh, Josh Johnson, uh, and I'm sure there's a reason why, uh, but I have no idea what it is. Uh, and I'm not a big conspiracy guy, but I was Kaepernick out of work, and a guy who hasn't completed a pass since 2011 is in the employ of the Houston Texans. Well, as you guys know, Colin Kaepernick's out of work. It has nothing to do with his ability, although the longer he's out, the greater he becomes. Yeah, that's and, right. uh, it's yeah, amazing. That's right. If you read some of the things out there, you'd think he won multiple Super Bowls. <laughs> We're a Republican state, and people here are very, very conservative. Bob McNair, I've never talked to him about Kaepernick, but I know as a Republican, as a guy who is as pro-military as any I've ever seen, who hangs out with the Bushes, has them in his suite. And uh, there's just, I've gone back to March when everybody said, well, they need a quarterback, they should consider Kaepernick. I said, it's never going to happen here. 
since the last in the last since people saw Savage play, and Bill O'Brien said they had they had talked about Kaepernick as they talk about all quarterbacks, and it looks like they talked about Josh Johnson. I didn't know he was still playing football. <laughs> I think he wasn't. Only, this is the only team he hasn't played with. I think it makes thirty two. <laughs> and um, and O'Brien said, "Well, of course we've talked about him. We talk about everybody that's available." Then the story's cranked up. Texans interested in Kaepernick, but it's just it's just not going to happen. And uh, and uh, they don't they haven't said that, but it's not. Bob McNair is not knowing him the way I do. And being such a Republican in such a conservative state, there's just no way it would happen. And whoever signs him, if they ever do, you guys know the kind of uh, distraction it'll be. It'll be Tim Tebow times 10. Right, right. And, uh, and it then will attract much more than just sports media. And uh, then it's all about when does he play? If he plays, what if he doesn't play well? Why is he not playing? And then what if he can't play anymore and you have to cut him? Imagine what that's going to be. So if one team would just sign him as attorney, Mark Drago said all this will go away about the collusion, but so far nobody's done it. We're speaking with Hall of Fame voter John McClain of the Houston Chronicle on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And John already said, you know, unfortunately we've got to go through the second half of the season. What do you expect for the second half of the season from the Houston Texans? What are you going to get? Tom Savage was just horrible Sunday until the last two series. Then the last two series, he took a touchdown, four out of four, 34-yard touchdown, great pass. It's like somebody else had put on his uniform. And then <laughs> takes him down to the first and goal at the seven-yard line, 18 seconds left, three incompletions, and then sack on fourth down. And so if that he had a rating of over 100 in the fourth quarter, 40 in the first three quarters against defense, it was 31st, including 31st against the pass. So uh, if that's the Savage who shows up against the Rams in the following week against Arizona here, then they'll, they've got a chance. They're not going to beat the Rams, but they'd have a chance to beat the Cardinals and maybe in the 49ers here. But if Tom Savage continues to play the way he did before the last two series when he was so off target, you know, there's one thing is Russ, but some of his passes looked like he was aiming for the Astrodome. He was so out of bounds. (laughs) And so he said, I played like crap, and that just summed it up perfectly. And he's got receivers playing well. He's got running backs. It was not the protection this time. Like Jacksonville, the offensive line, which isn't any good, still gave him enough protection. And the defense, I'll give you an example. Defense missing Watt, Merciless, Cushing, John Simon, A.J. Boyer, Quentin Dempson, and Vince Wilford. Those were all guys except Watt, who played last season, gone for different reasons. And so the defense is playing as well as it can. I look up the other day, they got guys that signed this week playing on on defense. They got a guy signed last week who I forgot was on the team. In fact, they cut a guy today who was playing, got a lot of playing time. So they, uh, they're in trouble. And the t- that, that clapping you hear is coming from Berea, Ohio, where the Browns have their number one picks because of the Deshaun Watson trade and the number two because of Brock Osweiler. Hey, John, you covered uh, Warren Moon. You covered Watson. Is there any comparison as quarterbacks, leaders, any way, shape, or form? 
Uh, Rick, it's interesting you said that. Uh, the first week of training camp, I wrote in uh, of how much Watson reminded me of Moon. 21, Warren was a 27-year-old rookie because of his five years in Canada. But uh, quiet, a quiet confidence, charisma, players gravitate to him. And uh, Warren, I've done two columns with Warren talking about him, one right after the draft and one before the Seattle game. And nobody, nobody could have predicted how great Watson would have been this fast. And uh, and so Moon, and I told Warren, I said, well, you know, he's a lot better runner than you, than you ever were. John McLean, thanks for the time, and good luck with the second half of the season. <laughs> hey, guys, come see us. There'll be plenty of run. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, John. Thanks, John. That was Hall of Fame voter John McLean of the Houston Chronicle. <laughs> Up next, our midseason awards, plus a pitch for an assistant coach to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Hey, Gooseman, uh, you're in Dallas, so I guess you're at ground zero of the Tony Romo, Deion Sanders spitfest, right? I'm not choosing sides, though. <laughs> neither side, neither side misspoke the truth. Romo started the cat fight, and Dion finished it. Yeah, it is a cat fight. Uh, for those who aren't aware, I'm not sure who those people are, but Romo last weekend described a missed tackle by Chiefs cornerback Marcus Peters and said, and I quote, he makes Deion Sanders look good at tackling sometimes, unquote. That, in turn, provoked this response from Dion. So I got to come at you, man. You, 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 ten years as a starter, you're two and four. In the playoffs. You ain't won nothing. I tried to bury the hatchet. Both of us work for CBS. I went and shook your hand and said, Tony, you're doing a great job this year. I thought that would be it. But nevertheless, you keep on shooting at me. Tony, what's going on, man? I got a gold jacket that I didn't buy. Dak says hi. (laughs) And bye. Tony, leave me alone, man. I got a lot of ammunition, man. How many interceptions? How many interceptions? 19 and 2012, come on, man. You threw to everybody but me. <laughs> Tony, come on, man. You know you never won the big one. You know you never won the big one. So stop, man. Leave me alone. I tried to take the high road, but I don't know the address. Ron, does that sound like someone who's taking the high road? Oh, boy. Look, uh, Dion's in a gold jacket, all right, but not because of tackling anybody. Uh, <laughs> you guys, I think, will remember when the coronation was going on in the room that day, I raised that issue and said, uh, are we really going to put a guy in a first ballot Hall of Famer who wouldn't tackle anybody? Uh, and, and he went. But his idea of tackling was, excuse me, senor. <laughs> <laughs> that matador defense. <laughs> these two didn't say that on the air, Ron. Hey, hey Gooseman, uh, is there a history of friction between these two? Because as you said, it really does sound like an old-fashioned cat fight. No history of friction. There are there are from two different generations of Cowboys. Dion's from the generation that won Super Bowls, and Romo's from the generation that didn't win squat. Oh, Cowboys, the Cowboys didn't ask Sanders to tackle, and the Cowboys did ask Romo to win Super Bowls. So one lived up to his expectations, wow. and one didn't. Sounds like the Gooseman just chose sides, Ron. Gooseman behaving on Romo ever since he dro- ever since he dropped the snap on that on that field goal. Goose has never let him up. Just beating him around. Okay, well, while we're on the subject, guys, uh, I will ask you, did you catch Cam Newton's response to a Kelvin Benjamin question after last weekend's defeat of Atlanta? Uh, He said, 
And I quote, <laughs> this is, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah, we just lost a great player, but nevertheless, the Titanic still has to go, unquote. Now, Ron, a spoiler alert here, but you want to tell him what happened to the Titanic in the North Atlantic? There's a good example of why I don't want any pro football players doing my taxes right there. I mean, that was a Freudian slip by a guy who wouldn't know Freud from Felix the Cat. I mean, it was just, uh, maybe he knows where the season's going, even though they're six and three. Maybe he knows well, something maybe. we don't know, you know? Yeah. But yeah, my recollection is Titanic, not a good ending. But Gooseman, you know what? I heard that and I thought, well, you know, maybe this is why Cam Newton isn't speaking to Carolina reporters. I mean, this is right up there with Ron Meyer. And Ron, you remember, remember Ron Meyer, I one do. of the great quote machines of all time. Anyway, when he was asked if he was going to lead his team to the promised land, he said, I quote, it's not like we came down Mount Sinai with the tabloids. <laughs> Unless it's a New York Post goose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, speaking in a public place should be like posting on Twitter. Some thoughts are better off left unspoken, untyped, and untransmitted. They don't hand out mulligans in the real world. That's why he's Dr. Data, folks. You well, know, and Goose, uh, Clark, before you go any further, because you yeah. mentioned Ron Meyer. This is a guy who once said to the media, Meyer, gentlemen, it's time to simonize our wives. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man, you, really, you can't make it up. Uh, well, something else you can't make up are our midseason awards, though. We did make them up this week on our website, talkofamenetwork.com. This, of course, was an election week with Votes Cast Tuesday, and so we cast our votes Tuesday for some of the most notable categories. And so, for that matter, did our readers. Before we get to us, man, let's get to them. Uh, they voted on the midseason MVP, and the winner was... Carson Wentz. The Eagles finally gave him some weapons, and now he's the most productive and best player in the NFL. Okay, well, we voted on it too, Ron, and the winner was... Carson Wentz, I believe. I mean, like, the Eagles are 8-1 and one because he's played great nearly every week, and the one week he didn't, they lose. And that's about as valuable as you can be. Yeah, but he didn't sweep the category, Ron. Not he is. Some guy voted for Brady. Oh, yeah, hey, like, you're speaking some things, to us. Some things I try to ignore. Well, you know this is one of them. Yeah, but I, I'll, I'll tell you why. I just yeah, think Brady does more, more with less than anyone else out there. I mean, Please. he, he thinks he's a victim of his own success. And Goose, you asked me about this earlier this week. I said, we're so used to seeing him do sort of incomparable things. When at 40, he has a team with a Matador defense, and that team's on top of the AFC. We just try and say, oh, you know what? It's Tom Brady. We've seen that before. So we look for guys we haven't seen it before and, and who haven't done this before. And, and you know what? Carson Wentz, Carson Wentz gets chosen because he hasn't done it before, Goose. Well, Carson Wentz has won more games than Tom Brady, thrown more touchdown passes than Tom Brady, and my vote wasn't about Tom Brady. It was about Carson Wentz. <laughs> yeah, my vote was for the most valuable player, not for the most productive player. Well, then um, talking Carson Wentz. Uh, yeah, for the most for the offensive player of the year, not the most valuable player. Is he playing with the league's worst defense? Uh, no. Nobody's yeah. playing with fully inflated footballs. Yes, sir. <laughs> Jeez, don't get me Never started. Okay, let's get on to our category sweeps. Please. There are four of them. Coach, defensive player of the year, best rookie, and biggest disappointment. So which of those four was the most difficult for you guys to vote on? Biggest disappointment because there are so many good candidates. Giants, <laughs> Buccaneers, Raiders. Wow. You, let me count the ways. Patriots defense. Really? Good boy. Gooseman in a foul mood today. Uh, for me, it's player of the year uh, this year and most years always because, uh, you know, it, it, to me, it's it's sort of like when, uh, you know, when we go in the room there at the Hall of Fame, we always know mm-hmm. we're going to leave people behind, you know, and this we got to pick one player, and and there's a, a number of guys that are having tremendous seasons. Uh, you know, how do you leave off uh, uh, Drew Brees? How do you leave out 
uh, Zeke, Ezekiel right. uh, Elliott, how do you leave out uh, Clarence Campbell, you know, Ty Gurley. I yeah. mean, you know, and so uh, for me, that, that was the hardest one. Well, let me ask you about this, guys, because the coach was the most difficult for me. And it seems to me that there's so many candidates there. And, and Ron, since you mentioned that, I'll start with you because you mentioned Sean McDermott as your, as your uh, backup guy, as your runner-up. But right. there's so many candidates there. I mean, you, you go around, Doug Peterson's a guy, uh, McDermott's a guy. Of course, Sean McVay was the sweep winner. He, he was the guy who swept the category. He was the winner. But there's so many candidates. Uh, Doug Marone down in Jacksonville is doing a good job. Um, was that difficult for you? Yeah, I mean, you could even put Belichick in there. Look, I mean, sure, you could. He, yeah, you the could. defense was struggling. He replaced all these players. He has a forty-year-old quarterback. You know, so I mean, uh, uh, a, you're right. I mean, it's it's uh, that one's always hard, and I think that one is really a, a case, as you pointed to earlier. Uh, erroneously, of course, about Brady. Uh, <laughs> I think it's really a case of coaches. You know, you, you, a lot of times the guy who's, who people think's got a pretty good team, he never gets coached here. It's he never gets coached here. That's right. And, and I think that's and Goose. That's what I was trying to say here. I mean, guys who like Peyton Manning. Well, of course, he won what four or five MVPs. But when you when you get to that level, I think people just go, oh well, you know, let's look for somebody else. I mean, we're suffering from Brady fatigue or Manning fatigue. And I think here, yeah, Carson Wentz has had a good first half, but man, I, I don't see how you could ignore Brady. I understand that there are a lot of candidates, but I thought Goose, we saw about coaches. We we're talking about. <laughs> Coach a second ago? Yeah, well, that's just you cut me off before I, I was going to it. I got a coach for you. Todd Bowles. Yeah, He's already would, won four more games than anyone thought was possible, uh, including the owner. Including the owner. <laughs> when, when you mentioned that about who should we include, I thought Todd Bowles would be included. But no yeah. one's going to vote for a four and four coach. They should. I mean, he's, he may, you're right. He's he could become the first coach in history to get fired so, for making the playoffs. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'll tell you what, guys. Tell you what's not difficult. Yep, that's listening to Rick Goslin make this week's State Your Case argument for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And Gooseman, we wrote about this guy on our website, that'd be talkoffamenetwork.com earlier this week. If you will, please tell our listeners why you believe a certain assistant is Hall of Fame worthy. You know, when a candidate is brought before the Pro Football Hall of Fame Selection Committee, the voters are asked to consider him for one specific area of achievement, whether it's as a player or as a coach or as a contributor. There's not supposed to be any overlap but voters look beyond that restriction in recent classes to induct two Hall of Famers for their body of work in football. John Madden was inducted as a coach who won a Super Bowl and an NFL record 76% of his game, but also for expanding the popularity of the game with his work as a television commentator and as a face of the video game Madden NFL. Dick LeBeau was inducted as a player uh, who intercepted 62 career passes and also as an inventive and successful assistant coach who has molded 13 defenses into top five units as a coordinator. Another Hall of Fame-worthy candidate lurks in the gray area between two successful modalities, Howard Mudd. He was an all-decade guy with San Francisco in the 1960s and also one of the game's top offensive line coaches over a 37-year period with seven teams. Like LeBeau, Mudd won his only Super Bowl ring as a coach, LeBeau with the Steelers and Mudd with the Colts. Mudd was a ninth-round pick of the 49ers in 1964 out of tiny Hillsdale College, but won a starting spot as a rookie. A sound technician, Mudd was voted to the Pro Bowl three times. But the 49ers struggled to compete throughout the 1960s, playing in the loaded Western Conference with the Colts, Bears, and Packers. Mudd couldn't win as a player, but he did as a coach. His Colts won an NFL title in 2006 with a blocking front that included a first-round pick, two fourth-rounders, a fifth, and an undrafted college free agent. Three years later, in Mudd's final season on the staff, the Colts won 14 games with an offensive line that included a fourth-rounder, a sixth, and three undrafted college free agents. You can take uh, Mudd's coaching history back even further to Cleveland in the 1980s. The Browns went to consecutive AFC title games with a block front that featured a fifth-round draft pick, a seventh, two-tenths, and a twelfth. 
what Mudd did on the field as a guard for the San Francisco 49ers and off the field in his second life as an offensive line coach gives him an impressive 45-year NFL body of work. And such a body of work deserves consideration for a bust in Canton. Well, Gooseman, I'm tempted to ask you... uh uh, what the word modality means, but I will look that up on my own. Art model. Art <laughs> modality. Yeah, there you go. But uh, uh, Mike, what I'm wondering is, is, is it not a danger, this kind of body of work argument? Uh, my fear would be that suddenly you get a Hall of Very Good Player and a Hall of Very Good Coach, and suddenly he becomes a Hall of Fame resident. Well, the danger would be in the election, not the discussion. The best assistant coaches in NFL history need to be discussed. The best scouts need to be discussed. The best personnel directors need to be discussed. Maybe they get in, maybe they don't. But with their contributions to the game, they deserve to be discussed. Hey, Goose, may quickly stack them for me. Howard Mudd, Bob McKittrick, Joe Bugle, or Dante Scarnecchia? Well, that's tough. Um, All four of them are great. I'd probably keep them in that order, though. And I give Mud the edge because he has he's had one first round draft pick. He's guy he's usually work with guys off the streets. Okay. Well I'll tell you who else is Hall of Fame worthy guys. That would be former Cincinnati offensive lineman Willie Anderson. And he's coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, Willie Anderson was one of the greatest players ever for the Cincinnati Bengals, garnering a spot on the franchise's 50th anniversary team. He was chosen this year. But thus far, that's as far as his post-career has taken. Willie's in his fifth year of eligibility for the Pro Football Hall, but he's never been a semifinalist, much less a finalist. He's on the preliminary list for the class of 2018 for his play during 12 seasons and 12 really good seasons. That's a right offense tackle for the Bengals, and he's here with us today. Willie, thanks for joining us. Thank you, y'all, for having me. Willie, you spent your career at right tackle. If you had enjoyed the same career at left tackle, do you think you'd already be in the Hall of Fame? No doubt. Um, I definitely believe that. Um, I think um, a lot more uh, postseason awards would have covered my way. Uh, I just think there was a um, not enough knowledge about the tackle position, uh, as I said before, um, to a bunch of other guys that I think the the whole Michael Orr left the blind side movie kind of made everyone think that the, the left tackle is the sole, the sole best blocker on every team. And, 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 and my entire 12-year career, I was with the Bengals. I was, I was definitely the, the best offensive lineman on, on the team. But I played the right position, right, the right tackle position, which in some people's mind in the traditional um, thinking – you know, the right tackle wasn't as important, but um, I was always the highest-paid guy. I was one of the highest-paid tackles in the league. And um, I think I think by changing position, if I was a left tackle, it would have made more sense to people. I think by playing right, you really had to come study uh, my film and other, other other great guys that play on the right side. Well, you, if I remember right, you, you began, you were a left tackle at Auburn, and you played left tackle your rookie year in Cincinnati, and then they moved you to the right side your second season. Uh Knowing what you know now, uh, would you have fought harder to stay on the left side? Absolutely, man. Um, and Dan, Dan, Big Daddy Wilkinson told me on the flight one day, he said, man, don't let them change you over to right tackle. Because what it was, I flip-flopped at Auburn. Terry Bowden ran a side where we had a strong side tackle and a field side tackle, and we flip-flopped side. So um, I got to the Bengals. The Bengals had a guy returning back, Kevin Sargent and um, Melvin Toon, that were going to be that tackle. Then they had um, Joe Walters. 13-year veteran still at the right tackle position. So um, um, Sergeant got hurt 
and Tootin didn't Tootin had a couple of bad games. So they say, hey, I was a holdout rookie for 27 days of training camp. By the time I caught my breath, it was it was week six, and they said, hey, you're gonna be the starting left tackle. So I played that year out and, and had a good season. I mean, I, I played against some great guys, and against Chris Dolman, uh, Chuck Smith, guys I had great success with. Uh, but we had Kevin Sargent coming back, and Paul Alexander and the Bengals they convinced me that right tackle would be a stronger position for me for our team because we had Corey Dillon and um, back in the 90s there was such a, a run dominating uh, era back then but once we changed once it changed over into the passing era and the quarterback getting 100 million dollars I got I got caught well did you ever did you ever consider going to the left side or anyone can talk about that going to the left side during that sort of once they made the transfer transformation from the, the running to the I, passing era I had the arrogant belief that I was going to make everybody in the league see how important yeah. the right tackle position was. I mean, I kind of did because, I mean, at one point before um, John DeAlden got his contract, I was uh, the highest-paid lineman in the league. So um, you, you had guys like Leon Searcy who got paid, a uh, uh, guy who was my personal hero, uh, Eric Williams. Um, those, those guys were, were older guys than me. And you kind of watch those guys, and I wanted to make guys see, well, hey, man, you know, um, if you're telling me that the right tackle doesn't mean anything, that and my quarterback should be able to see the quarterback, so that means I should step out of the way. I can step out of the way if Reggie White's coming, if Strahan's coming, if Javon Curtis coming, if Kevin Carter. All these guys coming, you, you guys should be able to see them, right? And I'm like, well, no, Willie, that's, that's not that's not what you're talking about. Well, you guys got to pay me as my importance to the team, and that's what happened. We're speaking with former Bengals great Willie Anderson on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And, Willie, since we're asking you the, the what-if questions, uh, I'll ask you another one. Uh, 69% of everyone with a bust in Canton has a championship ring. So what if the Bengals had won a championship during your career or even reached the Super Bowl? Do you think you'd already be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? I think if, I, if we had multiple playoff wins, um, I think it would have been a lot better if we had been able to get, you know, my my rookie season. We were eight and eight, and I think um, we were one win away from you know going nine and seven. And with the Jaguars that year, they went nine and seven and reached the AFC playoff game, AFC championship game. Um, the next season we came in, um, Jeff Blake gets hurt, Boomer comes in, and we went seven of nine. But that year you had to win at least uh, I think it was nine or ten games that got you in the playoffs. So. After that, the next, you know, 1998 to 2002 was pretty abysmal, you know. So um, I think if we had just had some winning seasons and where we at least won a playoff game here too, I think it would be a lot better. Um, I remember going my first year making the, the Pro Bowl, Sean Salisbury and, and Mark Slair coming over to Tequila Spikes and I, my Auburn teammate and Bingo teammate and saying, hey, man, we apologize to you guys. We said, why? He said, well, while at ESPN, man, we were told to – make fun of the Bengals because the Bengals didn't have any good players and people inside of football knew that he said, point to me, Willie, yourself, Tequila and Corey Dillon were high big time players, but you guys just played on bad football teams. He made it, man, we apologize because we didn't do it we didn't do you guys any service, any justice of talking about you guys while you guys played on a bad team. Yeah, well, well that speaking, was nice. <laughs> speaking of that, well you didn't have a winning season until your tenth year as a pro and that was also the only time you went to the playoffs in your 12th season with the Bengals. The Bengals won only 39% of the time during your career. How much does all that losing wear on a player? 
it would have on you a lot. You know, we, we had guys, uh, myself, you know, Corey, uh, Carl Pickers, you know, a great player that, that kind of got fed up with the losing. You had Corey Dillon. Things happen, man. And it was just, once you're going through it, you don't realize it. I was so young. You know, I wish I wish, I wish I would have made a couple of better decisions and choices. But when you're going through it, you don't think it's that bad. You always think you're going to be able to fight your way out of it. But there's so much more to, you know, building a great team, having a, you know, having a great year in the yard team. And I got a chance to witness that my last season in Baltimore where we got, we got to the AFC Championship game. And, and myself and my body playing for that long of a season, I was like, dang, these, these guys play this long every year, <laughs> you know. And so – <laughs> um, but it definitely wears on you because you you, you kind of sit back and um, I mean I, I remember 2002 or one I think Jaquiel Spice and myself we, we both had we were both damn near in tears because you know when Pro Bowl voting came out Jaquiel had his best year that year and it was 2000 I think one or two where I only had a lot of like I think one or no sacks and it just wears on you like damn like no one is watching us no one is paying attention. And we're gonna, you know, we're gonna die here in, you know, in, in abysmal. <laughs> 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 you know, so. <laughs> uh, well, during your uh, career, you played for five different head coaches and six different starting quarterbacks. Uh, how does that sort of lack of continuity on the field and off the field uh, impact an individual player like yourself who was there for the whole thing? Well, you guys, you guys probably got the quarterback count wrong. I, I know for a fact it was more than five. You count. We had a couple guys that played when the quarterback got hurt, so it was at least ten guys wow. to play with that, that, I, that I actually been in a game with and played with. I think we're talking um, about five in one game, Willie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, in, in ninety in ninety eight, we played. Uh, um, what's the Florida receiver name? Willie. He can't. Is Willie played at Florida in the nineties? Uh, Willie. Uh, Willie. Willie Jackson. <laughs> Willie. Will Jack. He actually was our third string. All the quarterbacks got hurt. <laughs> then Donald was hurt. Jeff Blake got hurt. Eric Cressler got hurt. And we actually played, I think, five plays with Willie Jackson at, at quarterback against, against, the, <laughs> against the Bucks the last game of the season. So I count a bunch of different guys that I played quarterback with. Uh, that <laughs> that I look at guys like, you know, the guys, a lot of great tackles. And, um, you know, if I look at John DeOgden, and, and I, I would tell JL, I said, well, Jill, you had a lot of quarterbacks, but you had a great defense. And being a tackle to have that great of a defense where in the fourth quarter I spent my career pass blocking. And that was kind of my, my claim to fame and myself and Levi Jones and Andrew Whitworth when he first got there. We, we were like, hey, man, we, we're the only tackles that that's blocking. In the fourth quarter, we down two, three touchdowns. <laughs> and it, 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 it's, it's great to be a tackle, to be an all-pro tackle. you got a defense that gives you a lead, and you're able to run the ball in the fourth quarter. So – we bingo tackles. We, you know, even uh, when Richmond Webb was there, one of my guys, my mentors, we used to always say, "Damn, man, we we want, we we're the only tackles in the league that are pass blocking in the fourth quarter." And and I always thought I, I took it upon pride upon myself of being able to shut guys down when they know that the whole second half you got to pass the ball. So I would tell people, say, "Man, we'll find some defensive ends that that will tell you that they constantly beat me, or there's very few we counted twelve that beat me." In my entire career, but wow. when you're going through losing seasons like that, you know Jeff Hoffman did a story on me on Bengals.com this summer, and we we, we came up with 12, 12 rushes from '96 to 2008 from Jason Taylor, the straight hands, the Reggie White, Javon Curse, Kevin Carter, uh, Julius Peppers. None of these guys can tell you they ever beat me. Wow. But when you're losing and 
and no one wants to hear that. <laughs> that yeah. oh yeah, the, the tackle didn't get beat the entire game. Yeah. No, <laughs> one, right. qu- what, one quick question, what? Willie. Uh, you, you mentioned this Willie Jackson. Uh, what is a guy, especially a guy like yourself, who's such a talented player? Think in the huddle when you look across and your quarterback is, is Willie Jackson. I mean, do you look at him and just say, what the hell are you doing here? I mean, what goes through your mind? That was the last game of the season, 98. And we were like, let's get this damn thing over. <laughs> like, that, that, that was the last game of three and 13 season. And the Bucks said, I remember Warren Sapp. I remember the Bengals had me, uh, Sapp and I, we would laugh about it all the time now. We laugh about it now. I would have to. At tackle, I would have to sit down on Warren Sapp and block the three technique, help him first, and then block my guy <laughs> because <laughs> Sapp was that dominant with our guard. So, you know, that, that was a bad season. That was a horrible season. And we was like, hey, man, just hike the ball and just, let's run the ball and get out of here and go home <laughs> and regroup for next year. Hey, Willie, er, earlier in the segment, and we're speaking to Hall of Fame candidate Willie Anderson of the Bengals on the Talk of Fame Network. But earlier in the segment, you said, I wish I had made better decisions and choices. Now, I, I surmise that one of those decisions you wouldn't have made was to play quarterback for the Bengals. So what would some of those better decisions or choices have been? Could you give us a one or two for as examples? Um, one, one big thing, I tell my son right now, my son is actually a receiver now at Georgia Tech. And um, I tell kids, I have a lineman academy here in Atlanta, Willie Anderson Lineman Academy. I tell my kids, I said, man, um, at an early age, at 21, 22, 23, I didn't take certain things as serious, and I, I look at it because of the environment that I was in. And I, I kind of wish that I was took um, making myself and making players around me better at an early age, and, and not wait to you know year four or five, or you know um, maybe one decision may be to see, hey, it's going to be a long, long overhaul, and I, I maybe would have left and doing free agency. Who, who knows? I mean, but just decisions that you make. Like I say, I don't exclude myself. From, the, from those teams, I was on the teams. I didn't play great all the time, but my, my point was that uh, the majority of the time that I was. And I, I just think that, um, you know, I was thrown into a leadership position at an early age. I wish I had learned how to lead at a young age the way I learned in the back half of my career. Willie, who's the best back you ever blocked for? Steven Davis at Auburn or Corey Dillon at the Bengals? It's definitely Corey. You know, I, I love Steven Davis to death. Um, but Steven... Um, Steven didn't have his – Steve had some good years at, at Auburn, but we also had another guy by the name of James Bostick my freshman year. And uh, my freshman year, James Bostick led the, the league in rushing. Steve was his backup. My sophomore year, Steve led the league in rushing. But, uh, you know, obviously, Corey Dillon, you know, I think Steve, I think Steve Davis is, is definitely um, a great all-time NFL running back. But Corey Dillon is just he's, – he's a different specimen, you know, in my opinion. Hey, Willie. Thanks so much for the time, like Stephen and Corey Dillon. We're going to run. So uh, thanks for the time. Best of luck with your Hall of Fame candidacy. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Willie. That was former Bengals tackle Willie Anderson. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Welcome back. Can you hear that sound? That's the two-minute that means we're going to the two-minute drill with Goose asking this week's questions. Let's get it going, Goose, man. The Bucks are going to shut down quarterback James Winston for a couple weeks. Who in the NFL would you like to shut down for a couple weeks? Zeke Elliott's lawyers. <laughs> you peeked over my shoulder. I was going to say the same thing. They made more moves than Tyreek Ty- Ty- Hill. Unbelievable. Cover your answers, Ron, would you please? Jeez. It's like being in seventh grade. The Bucks wideout Mike Evans was suspended for a game for leveling a Saints defensive back from behind. What punishment would you have doled out? Three rounds with A.J. Green. 
I thought the penalty fit the crime, but if he had Ezekiel Elliott's attorneys, he'd be in front of the Supreme Court fighting it. <laughs> Which soap, my shoulder. <laughs> which soap opera will have a longer run? Days of Our Lives or The Trials and Tribulations of Ezekiel Elliott? Neither, Gooseman. I prefer Dynasty, starring Tom Brady. <laughs> Sick, man. Days of Our Lives, because they can rewrite the script, but Zeke can't re- rewrite Article 46, Section 1, Subsection A. <laughs> Calais Campbell, Jason Campbell, or Glenn Campbell? The Tyler Rose, Earl Campbell. Good one. I got a better one. Naomi Campbell. It ain't Ooh. even close. Ouch. Former Pro Bowl wideout Josh Gordon hasn't played for two seasons. Can he be the X factor for the Browns? He can be the XTC factor. <laughs> I would say no, but if he isn't back in rehab after a few weeks of playing with the Browns, he's really cured. <laughs> the NFL schedule is a mess. If you were the schedule czar, which night would you eliminate from the mix, Thursday or Monday? Thursday. There are laws against cruel and unusual punishment, Guzman. Agreed. Thursday. Missing one night off is no big deal. Missing three nights off is a death sentence to football. If you were the NFL schedule czar, which country would you eliminate from Mex- England or Mexico? United States. <laughs> I like tacos better than fish and chips, Goose, but I don't like needing NFL sanctioned transportation from the airport. Hasta la vista, Mexico. <laughs> Historically, Carson Wentz or Donovan McNabb? Historically, Donovan McNabb went to four straight conference championships games in four years. Wentz? He went to Starbucks. Historically, Carson Wentz has no history. Donovan McNabb. That's, That's going to do it for our number one. But stay where you are. Coming up, it's John McVay, grandfather of the Rams, Sean McVay, and former 49er star Jesse Spolo of the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Welcome back to our number two of the Talk of Fame Network, the Veterans Edition of the Talk of Fame Network. And later in this hour, we'll hear from former San Francisco 49ers great Jesse Sapolo on the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame. Really, I mean. There is one. As well as former coach and GM John McVay, the grandfather of Rams coach Sean McVay. And we'll be hearing from him on what he's learned f- about and from Sean this season. But first, as I mentioned, it's Veterans Day this Saturday. And I don't know if you guys caught this, but a former veteran. And I th- think he was in the Navy for a year. But uh, Vince Gully, Hall of Fame broadcaster of the Dodgers for nearly 70 years. Last week at a Q&A session at the Pasadena Civic Auditorium, he had something to say about the NFL. And, and what he said was that he'd no longer watch it because of player protests. And you know what, Goose? His remarks were greeted by prolonged applause and cheers. Yeah, it all depends on which side of the fence you're standing. You know, Scully clearly stands on one side with Colin Kaepernick, Malcolm Jenkins, and Eric Reed among those standing on the other side. Scully is entitled to his opinion just as Kaepernick is his. Well, you know, I long have loved the Vince Scully and his work. Uh, I've been in his presence a number of times, and I always thought he was a very kind guy and a, uh, had a pretty good grasp on the average man's point of view. Um, I think that's one reason he's so popular. Um, but having said that, uh, I think he needs to read the Constitution. Um, he certainly has the right to no longer watch and, uh, and to oppose the actions of the players, uh, whose life experiences, quite frankly, are far different than his, I'm sure. Um, but I don't think his viewing habits are going to change them or change the course of, uh, of football, but he's certainly entitled 
to his opinion. Well, Goose, as, as Ron mentioned, Vince Scully is a pretty level-headed guy, but he basically equated players not standing for the anthem as disrespect for military vets who served and served defending the flag. Yet players insist that's not what they're doing. And guys, I just wonder, because Vince Scully said this, isn't this a telltale sign that no one really is sure why these guys are nailing? And, and more than that, that they've had enough? I know I've had enough. You know, the message, I think, has been lost you know, my family has a past and present history in the military, and I'll stand for the anthem and the flag every day. Well, I just think it's a telltale sign of too many people talking and not enough people listening. You know, people need to listen to both sides, inside and in the side of these players. And I think a lot of people are talking when they should be listening. Okay. Well, I'm going to be talking right here, and then we're going to be listening. We've got to stop right there, guys. And we're going to go I to seldom break. listen when you're yeah. talking. I know that. When we return, it's Ron with his Borges or Bogus. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. Listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Hey, before we get started, did you guys see what happened after last weekend's Michigan State Penn State game? A goose egg. Well, I, don't, I know you did. I mean, I was too busy doing cartwheels at the front yeah, yard. <laughs> yeah. Well, in case for those who don't know, and I'm not sure why you would know, Goose went to Michigan State. Oh, surprise! So I know you saw it. But Ron, did yeah. you see what happened? Afterward, when the Penn State coach, James Franklin, I think his name is, he chased down players going to the locker room? Yeah, I did. I did. It was an interesting move. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, it received a lot of po- uh, positive publicity, and rightfully so. But I think he's the same guy who uh, iced a Georgia State kicker with a 56 to nothing lead oh. and said beating Pitt was like Penn State beating Akron, which was kind of a slap in the face oh, to schools, wow. two schools. So. Maybe he needs to shake his own hand. Well, yeah, I, I don't remember that, but uh, I'm not a Penn State follower, but I, I thought what he did was classy. And you know what he said afterwards? He said, we're going to win with class and we're going to lose with class. I thought that was classy. Yeah. And you know what? Um, as I said, Goose, I mean, I wasn't a Penn State fan before, but I am now. Yeah, I mean, that that's a team that had national championship expectations, and he wasn't going to let him just walk off the field with those hopes dashed. You know, that's... Win with class, lose with class. That's a sign yeah. of a good program, and I think he's building one at Penn State. Well, it reminds me, Goose, I mean, and Ron, you know this too. Is that's one tradition I love about the NHL and hockey. When a series is over in the Stanley Cup playoffs, you know what happens. Players line up, shake the hands of their opponents. But you don't see that in the NFL, especially when guys like A.J. Green, Mike Evans, or uh, Marshawn Lynch are involved. You don't see that. Well, throw an A.J. Green or uh, Jalen Ramsey and Jameis Winston into that mix as well. You know, uh, Mike Evans. Th- this is the culture football has become today. Every play seemed to spawn a celebration. And every celebration, frankly, is a form of taunting. Look at me. Look at me. I'm so great. I tackled a runner eight yards down the field, but I tackled him. Aren't I great? <laughs> Hey, look at Ron. Look at Ron. He's got a, he's got something to say. Ron, go ahead. <laughs> you imagine some of these guys in the NFL walking through a line. Like, that'd be like a riot every week. It'd be unbelievable. It's wow. be, you know, and Dominican Sue choking Ryan in the mouth. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Leave him alone. Well, we mentioned this is Veterans Week, and it is. It's also Election Week. So I wanted to ask you guys to cast your vote for your favorite NFL vet, Pastor President. And Ron, since you've been covering this league for almost 40 years, 
You're first. And just a reminder, being in Franco's army, yeah, being in Franco's army, that, that doesn't count, okay? Absolutely so no chance of me being in Franco's army. <laughs> yeah. Trust me on that. Me and Bill Piano. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot of tons and tons of guys you can pair, uh, of course, but uh, I think a Gino Marchetti, uh, an 18-year-old boy, machine gunner at the Battle of the Bulge in World War II before he came home, uh, chose to go to college, became a Hall of Fame football player, and then a Hall of Fame businessman. Uh, of course, he wasn't alone uh, at the Battle of the Bulls as a young kid, but can you imagine being 18 years old wow. in, in one of the great military battles of all time? I mean, it's tremendous. Ron, I'll go with uh, Roger Staubach. How many guys mm-hmm. who served in Vietnam have a bust in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? You know, He was a Heisman Trophy-winning lieutenant in the Navy who volunteered to go to Vietnam because, quote, I wanted to give something back. Yeah. And you guys wonder why he has the nickname Captain America? Roger Staubach, friend of the show. Friend of the show. Yeah. I'm going to stick with Steelers offensive lineman, West Point grad, and former U.S. Army captain, Alejandro Villanueva, for standing up for the flag when there was a ton of pressure not to. Now, Goose, as you talked about earlier, I understand it backfired because he was supposed to remain in the locker room, but I don't care. I mean, he was like others around the league who knelt on the sidelines, standing up for his convictions, and that which, that's what you address, Goose, and the people on both sides of the line. He wasn't afraid to stand up, and, and I admire that. Yeah, let me just throw up Pat Tillman as well. Oh, he yeah, walked Pat away Tillman. from an yeah. NFL career yeah. to serve his country yep. and yep. Paid, paid the ultimate price for it. Yeah, I mean, Pat Tillman, probably for me, with modern players, is at the head of the class. Um, since we mentioned it's election week... There was an election recently for the Polynesian Hall of Fame. Poo-poo platters all around, boys. (laughs) I'll be honest with you. I I didn't know when it existed until I saw this item. And it it said, you know, we've announced our class of 2018. And that class includes Herman Clark, Mahaki Kimoatu, Manu Tuyasasopu, Kimo Von Olhofen, and Bob Apiza. How the hell did Herman Clark get in (laughs) there? How did he fit in with all those guys? <laughs> <laughs> she must have changed his name when he was like 21. When I mentioned Bob Apiza, I'm looking at the goose man over there. I think we got to pack him in ice because oh. when, I, when I saw him react to his name, he was a member of the 1965-66 Spartans. They were national champs, Goose, is that right? There was Starting and, fullback. Yeah, and, and he's a member of the Michigan State Athletics Hall of Fame, so I guess he's no stranger to you. Well, you know, Bob Apiza's... Uh, is apparently widely considered the father of Polynesian football. Uh, I'm not sure why that is, but as a claim to fame goes, I think that's a pretty good one. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, Michigan State's Hall of Fame coach Duffy Doherty had a pipeline to Hawaii back then. The place kicker on the national title team was Dick Kenny, also from oh, Hawaii. Yeah, well, I think those guys, to be honest, must have loved that East Lansing winner back then. <laughs> Well, can I have a pipeline? Hawaii is a good place to have one because you go <laughs> shoot the pipe. Well, it's, uh, that's also. Guys, where the Hall of Fame is, uh, the Polynesian part of the uh, Polynesian uh, Cultural Society. Road trip. Yeah, and I was going to say, why are we going to Canton when we could be going to Hawaii? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, they've got their induction January 19th and 20th of 2018. What do you say? Road trip? <laughs> Absolutely. I yeah. got my uh, wax my board. I'm ready to go. What is um, Danny Salamoa going in? <laughs> well, you know. With the Chiefs. He was oh, sure. dominating nose tackle. Yeah. Just a matter of time. But I'm we sure. need to stuff the belt, but we need to get Danny Salamo on this show. In fact, um, a good one. They've got a pretty good list. Um, y- you know, you've got uh, Troy Palomalu's in there. Um, Kevin Y is in there. Of course, Junior Seau's in there. But um, they've got some other guys you may not have thought of. But if you go onto their website, I think it's PolynesianHOF.org. Uh, um, it's actually pretty interesting because Goose. I mean, they're 
is a pretty good list of, of Polynesian players who you can make a, a, a damn good team out of. Alphabetically, it starts with a pizza and Talent-wise, it probably should, still should start with a pizza. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I like Herman Clark. <laughs> I, I, I'm, a, I'm a junior Seau guy. Well, that's the cue for our Hall of Famer. Yeah, our Hall of Famer. A member of the Talk of Fame Network Hall of Fame. That's what I'm gorgeous. Ronnie, where are you going today? Well, according to uh, Tony Dungy, whose word we would all trust on all matters, uh, Colts owner Jim Irsay believes Andrew Luck remains sidelined more because of mental doubts than physical pains. Uh, while speaking on what he didn't know was a live mic on the Dan Patrick Show, Dungy said during a commercial break that Irsay told him six weeks ago, quote, it's in his head now, unquote. Well, maybe it is, but if Andrew Luck wasn't ready for the regular season after shoulder surgery, as Irsay predicted, uh, because he had doubts about playing behind that mess of an offensive line, that's not bogus for him to be thinking that way. In five years as the Colts starter, Luck has, been, has taken a beating. And the large reason why is the line that Ursay paid to put in front of him. Luck has been sacked 156 times in 70 games, which is the equivalent of about four and a half seasons. That's an average of 31 sacks a year. Twice he's been taken down over 40 times, the last time being 2016 when, surprise, his shoulder finally fell apart. That's not mental. To suggest, though, though, is bogus. Luck has not played since, despite Ursay's declaration that he'd be ready when the season began. Clearly, Ursay and the Colts believed that would be the case because they did nothing to prepare for an alternative reality until it was too late. Well, Andrew Luck's replacements have been sacked 36 times in nine games. If you didn't have reservations about returning to play behind those guys, that would be bogus, and you'd also be nuts. <laughs> Jacoby Brissett, who is now starting, has been sacked 32 times in eight games. Do the math. That's 64 times in a full season. But you wouldn't get to a full season because you'd be in traction. In August, Ursay said, all sports are played on a four-inch field between your ears. It's really important we continue to help Andrew emotionally, mentally, get his confidence and his endorsement deep down, his rubber stamp in his heart of hearts. Because in the end, that carries the biggest weight. No, bro, those big fat linemen carry the biggest weight, and apparently they can't move it. Easy for him to say standing upright in the owner's box, but it's not likely to spur luck to rush back to face the kind of rush that keeps getting Jacoby Brissett knocked flat. Ron, what would it cost to hire Howard Mudd back to win his magic on all those low-round draft picks to have protecting luck? Whatever the cost, Andrew Luck will gladly pay half, if not all. I mean, this is this is crazy. I mean, what is Ursay thinking? I mean, he's Clark's pally. What is he thinking, Clark? <laughs> no, he's not. I, I, I have no idea, but let me ask you this. You think Andrew Luck plays again? Uh, I don't think he plays this year. No, but I mean, again. Period. Oh, yeah. No, I you do. Know. I okay. do. I'm not sure he's going to play there if he can get out of there, though. I mean, would you stay? Uh, Guy no. just called you gutless. <laughs> no, no, I wouldn't. You just called him crazy. <laughs> well, he is crazy anyway, if he goes back in there. <laughs> well, he needs good offensive linemen. And speaking of good offensive linemen, guess what? We've got one coming up. That would be chairman and founder of the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame, former 49er star Jesse Polo. He's coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. <laughs> Listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Before we went to break, we were speaking of the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame, and I don't know that a lot of people know about it, but it's headquartered in Hawaii. Its inaugural class was the class of 2014, and it is full of names you would recognize, including Junior Seau, Russ Francis, Troy Palomalo, Kevin Mawai, and our next guest, that would be former 49ers star and Super Bowl champion Jesse Sapolo. Now, 
When I covered the team in the 1990s, Jesse's Locker was a must-stop for any member of the media because he not only was an outstanding player, he was a deep thinker who could and did put everything in perspective. Now, of course, he's the founder and chairman of the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame, and he's with us today. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. You got it. Hey, Jess, can you tell us how you got the idea of a Polynesian Football Hall of Fame? Well, um, I've been going to the different uh, Pacific Islands to do football camps once a year uh, with uh, Coach June Jones, uh, you know, uh, some years with Troy Polamalu, and, and we were just talking about the history of who was the first Polynesian to ever play football in the National Football League. And we found out it was 1947. And we were all kind of shocked at that because we didn't realize that uh, we go that far back. Uh, and then we were just talking and reminiscing about, uh, you know, the, 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 the people that came through. And, and we realized that uh, we have a, uh, a history as far as uh, Polynesians uh, uh, playing football, you know. And, and back when I played uh, in the 80s and 90s, I think we had six or seven guys mm-hmm. in the National Football League. Uh, but now we're up, up to 60. Whoa. We have close to 1,000 in college that Division One, Two, and Three, and, and AIA. And we just felt like uh, with uh, the influence that the youth of today uh, is experiencing, especially with our culture, uh, it was time for us to try to do something uh, so that these kids don't forget uh, some of the people that laid the groundwork. And then uh, the next pastor, including myself, that came through and and, uh, in the pioneering stages and, and pushed the envelope and knocked the door down for them to get it to this level. Uh, One of the things that's very important in the Polynesian community is is the the culture and the the respect and how we carry our family name uh, and and those kind of things that we just felt like uh, it was important for us to do this because uh, this is the sport that uh, most Polynesians are successful in. And uh, we can use it in all different ways to open doors, not only uh, sports-wise, but uh, also academically uh, with our students, with the, with the influence that we have to the game of football. So I knew it was a big uh, uh, task to tackle, but uh, my connection and growing up in Hawaii and, uh, and of course, in the, in the NFL, uh, uh, we were able to raise some funds to get the first class done and now we have a physical home at the Polynesian Culture Center which is owned by the Mormon Church and they just don't let anybody come in there but I think the influence of sports and 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 how powerful that is uh, they've allowed us to partner with them and, and, and have a physical Hall of Fame uh, spot in the Polynesian Culture Center which uh, close to a million people go through there every year which was important to us because you can have a Hall of Fame somewhere, but if nobody goes in there to look, right. uh, it's, it's not going to be uh, very successful. So that's kind of a, of a 
overview of how it got started, but uh, it's grown to the point where, uh, you know, we we have over uh, fifteen hundred people at the dinner uh, uh, every year that we have, and uh, and now we've added the Polynesian Bowl because uh, the Pro Bowl is no longer in Hawaii, and uh, you know it's hard to ask the NFL guys to play hard. <laughs> with the kind of money that they make. But I think uh, the, the, the social media and how high school players are being marketed nowadays uh, were able to uh, take the place of the Pro Bowl and, and make it more of a passionate family game uh, and get the community involved in it. And we've had a successful year last year. Jesse, when you were growing up, what Polynesian players did you look up to and did you admire? Um, the, the the one that was right before me was uh, um, mostly Tatupu out of SC. Um, we had Manu Tuyasopo, who's going in this year right. to the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, we had Jack Thompson that was known as a throwing Samoan that was the number three pick in the whole draft. You know, uh, we have to remind kids today that, you know, he was uh, like our, our RG3 back in the day. Yeah, you know, we 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 never thought we would have a a Polynesian player get picked that high, and then uh, so. But those that 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 was the group that uh, I, I I looked up to because they were they were seniors in college when I was coming in as a freshman. Well, the three of us, uh, uh, Jess, are all uh, Hall of Fame voters for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and we're often baffled by uh, how our process works, uh, even though they were in the middle of it. So I'm just wondering, how is, how is the voting done? How is the nominations handled? Who decides um, who's going to get in and what's the process? Well, um, we have a lot of college coaches that coach Polynesian players, uh, you know, for over 20 some years of their careers, you know, the late LaBelle Edwards mm-hmm. at BYU, uh, Dick Tomey that coached me in Hawaii and at Arizona. Uh, we have Dick Vermeil uh, that coached a lot of Polynesians at UCLA. Uh, and then we have Neil Everett who started his broadcasting career in Hawaii. Uh, we have uh, Kevin Mawise, one of the inductees that we've added to to the uh, to the selection committee, and we have some media people, uh, another media guy from Hawaii uh, that understands uh, uh, the, the, the Polynesian uh, players and their accomplishments. But you know, we we as a board try to suggest that your NFL accomplishments is number one, and then uh, you include the college if it's close, and then also, uh, of course, you go all the way to. Uh, your high, high school accomplishment. Uh, one of the guys that went in, I, I believe, the first or second year, uh, Kurt Gobert, who won uh, two Super Bowls with the Redskins. Right. You know, he didn't make the Pro Bowl, but he won uh, two championships in high school, uh, won a national championship at BYU, and won two Super Bowls with the Redskins, and that was uh, that was big in him uh, being selected to go in. So. You know, uh, you know, we we uh, come into some hurdles that we have to, you know, uh, refine every year. But uh, it's getting better every year. We're speaking with former 49ers center Jesse Sapolo, the founder and chairman of the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame, and you can find more about it 
if you just click on PolynesianFootballHOF.org. Or you know what? You could just listen to Jesse here on the Talk of Fame Network. And Jesse, I did click onto your website, and I saw the photos of your hall located, as you mentioned, in the Polynesian Cultural Center. Is that on the Big Island? No, that's in uh, Honolulu. Oh, it is. Okay, it's in Honolulu. Uh, the Polynesian Cultural Center uh, is the biggest uh, uh, attraction uh, in Honolulu because in there it has all the different villages from all the different islands of the South Pacific. Oh, okay. Well, and then it, it, you can take a whole day tour, and then they have a night show. Uh, wow! Uh, if you want to, you know, watch the show from seven to nine thirty. But uh, in there, uh, we they've uh, uh, built a, a Polynesian Hall of Fame. You know, a lot of the thing about it now with social media. You know, my phone would go off, and then there's people there that are Niner fans that. <laughs> that have gone into the Hall of Fame and took a picture by my jersey and sent it to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> and, uh, I, yeah, well, I, I, I looked on the website, and that's an impressive, impressive uh, display. And I, I noticed also that your induction is the weekend of January 19th, 20th, 2018. So a, a couple of questions. We've got maybe two minutes left. Where does that induction take place? Does it take place there? What happens there? And how do we get tickets to it? <laughs> <laughs> you you make it down there, and I'll, I'll work something out. There we go. Hook there us up. Go. There I'll tell go. you what, we'll be available. <laughs> but what happens there? Is it like the is it like the Pro Football Hall? I mean, guys stand up and give speeches. Yes, we we uh, we have the the big dinner uh, at one of the hotels that's uh, one of the sponsors. Uh, it's either the Sheridan or the Hilton. The last year was the Hilton Hawaiian Village, mm-hmm. the biggest ballroom, and then. Uh, there we do the uh, dinner. They give you the, the Hall of Fame jacket, and you get interviewed in front of everybody that's at the dinner. And then Saturday you get your ring presentation at the IMAX Theater inside wow. the Polynesian Football Hall of Fame. Wow! wow. And then everybody walks through the new class as they put the jerseys, as just to view the jerseys in the Hall of Fame. And then they do a canoe ride uh, with all the honorees. While all the fans are watching you, you know, the, the way the Polynesian Coastal Center is, uh, is built. And then uh, we try to get through that by 4 o'clock on Saturday, and then we rush to Aloha Stadium and uh, for the Polynesian Bowl. Oh, nice. And then they get uh, introduced at halftime Terrific. The, on the reef of the class. So uh, it's grown to the point where it's, it's pretty much a – a four or five day event. Nice. Well, Jesse, thanks so much for the time. And you know what? Send us an invitation to the Hall's induction. We'll be there. <laughs> we'll have Clark stay in touch with me and we'll do that. You got it. <laughs> thanks, Jess. Thank you, guys. That was former 49ers great Jesse Sapolo. Up next, it's another former 49ers great. That would be GM John McVeigh, grandfather of the Ram Sean McVeigh. This is the Talk of Fame Network. Hey, Jess, you still. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, we go from Jesse Sapolu to another 49ers great, and that's former San Francisco executive John McVay. Now, I first met John when I covered the team in the 1990s and immediately, and I mean immediately, gained the greatest respect for someone who was a head coach in the World Football League and NFL and who, as executive vice president and director of football operations in San Francisco, collaborated with Hall of Famer Bill Walsh in building one of the greatest dynasties ever 
was named the league's 1989 Executive of the Year and presided over five, yes, five Super Bowl winners. But that's not all. In case you missed it, John is the grandfather of Sean McVay, head coach of the Los Angeles Rams. John is with us today, and John, always, always a pleasure to hear from you. Pleasure to be here. Glad to hear your voice. Thank you, John. Feelings mutual. So let's cut to the quick. I mentioned your grandson, Sean, who's coaching the first place Los Angeles Rams and whom we just made our midseason coach of the year. How much, how much satisfaction does it give you to see what he's doing in his first year on a very, very difficult job? Well, it, it certainly is a difficult job going into a situation when you're, when you're coming on board following the coach who has been released and then uh, trying to take you know, that personnel and that, everything to make it work. And he's been successful in doing that uh, so far, knock on wood. Uh, he's had unbelievably good tutelage, uh, having worked with uh, both of the Grudens, uh, who served as head coaches. And for a, a young guy, he's, he's got quite a bit of experience uh, in the National Football League. So, uh, as you can see, I'm... I'm uh, very proud of him uh, and what he's doing and how he's keeping his composure and, and making things work for him. John, I, I was covering the Giants back in 1976 when you were named as the interim head coach to replace Bill Arnsbarger, and you wound up coaching the Giants for 37 games. What have you passed on to Sean from your experiences about the pressures and expectations of the head coaching position? Well, the pressure and the expectations, uh, as we all know, are extremely high, and, uh, and and it does varying degree from 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 different franchises. Uh, but uh, I I think you know having talked with him and and Sean's father Tim has had an enormous influence. On Sean, as far as his coaching is concerned, uh, Sean has grown up with uncles and dad, and and who have been successful in uh, college football, and so uh, he's he's had the benefit. Plus, I remember him telling me that uh, he has Bill Walsh's book. Bill Walsh had a book. It's a how-to book, which is it's unbelievably uh, complete and concise. And but Sean said he would read a few pages at night until he would fall asleep, and then and then carry on and do the same thing in the next day. So uh, he and he had had been had met with Bill Walsh, uh, you know, face to face when he was. Not Bill was a youngster, but when Sean was a youngster. When, when did you realize first or, or sense that maybe he was cut out for this this coaching thing? And, and did you ever try to dissuade him from doing it? Because, uh, you know, as you know, for every one guy like you or, or, or he that made it, there's a lot of guys um, uh, you know, who are moving every two or three years. Yes, yeah. Uh, you know, we have talked about it, and we've talked about, the, you know, the fun and the excitement of, of being with 
the other coaches and being with your team and your players and uh, it's great to win it's tough to lose and uh, you had just have to be flexible enough that you can deal you know with the downside of it and and remember the whole you know we got another game to play next week let's don't uh, let's don't languish on the one that uh, that was right behind us we're speaking with former NFL coach and executive John McVay on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at talkoffamenet. And, John, as I mentioned, you presided over one of the greatest sports franchises in history. I'm wondering, how willing would you or Bill or Eddie have been to hire a 30-year-old coach like Sean as a head coach back in the oh, 80s or 90s? Well, you'd have to ask Eddie that question. <laughs> he made the decisions. But he was a young guy when he took over as an owner. When he, yeah, he was just about that, you know, yeah. very close to that same age when he uh, inherited uh, the role here to be the president of the 49ers. And, uh, and at the time, you know, they had gone through some rough and tumble times, and, and, uh, and things were tough. And then when he hired Bill and then uh, and myself and and the three of us got together, uh, things were still tough, and it took a while to get the, to get it turned around. It was you know Bill Walsh's and mine, and so it was like our third year before all of a sudden uh, we were in the playoffs. Right, right. Always helps to have a quarterback like Joe Montana, doesn't it? It is essential. <laughs> if you're going to win in this league, you have to have a good quarterback. Right. And, you, and you have to have a willing owner. And you have to have a coach who has control of certain aspects, control of the personnel, control of the, uh, the assistant coaches. Uh, so, you know, to, to make it all fly... Uh, you need to have those kinds of things. Hey, John, the, the Rams weren't the only team looking for head coaches off season. So were the 49ers. Were you pulling for Sean to wind up there? Uh, I, I was Sean uh, and and Kyle Shanahan. You know, had worked together at Washington and and had had been friends and uh, and co had co assistant coaches at various stages. So. Uh, you know, here were two young guys uh, that everybody thought, well, these, here's some real potential here on these two guys, on, 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 on Sean and on Kyle. And it was just a matter of, of the Rams grabbing one and, and the 49ers grabbing one. But as, as we all know, if you're going to win... You've got to have players. <laughs> That's true. Uh, in, in your mind, what is the most essential thing? Putting you know, putting talented players aside, uh, that a head coach uh, in the NFL has to have. You know, position coaches are different. Uh, you know, they're coaching football, but these guys have a lot of other things to do. What's the most essential thing in your mind uh, for a head coach to be successful? A willing owner. <laughs> An owner who is, you know, in concert with his head coach and 
and, and like Eddie did, uh, you know, everything as we moved along and would would come to Eddie, and his dad was still with us at that time. But whatever it was that was needed, uh, it was forthcoming. Well, John, since you mentioned that, uh, it's a nice segue to Eddie DeBartolo. We've had him on the show before. We certainly saw him in Canton. Um, he was a willing owner, and, and you worked for him for many years. How much satisfaction did it give you to see him go into the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Oh, I was, I'll tell you, I was so excited, and I was there with my son and his two daughters, and um, and we we got a chance to, of course, visit with, with Eddie and with his wife and, and family, and uh, I, I was just so happy for him because uh, when he first took over with the Niners, things were rough. I mean, they were rough, and uh, he's the guy who fought the battles and, and with Bill fought through it, and uh, got the franchise uh, turned around and uh, hitting on all cylinders. John, how much does it pain you to see what's going on with the 49ers and the Giants, your, your two old teams? It's, you know, it's painful because I, I, can, I can feel for both the coaches. You know, they, you know, these guys dedicate so much of their lives and their and their. Their ability and 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 trying to get things, trying to get things going, get the things going in the right direction, and you know I'm, I'm confident that they will. I'm, I'm, I I know, of course, the Giants have been there recently, and they and that a year ago uh, they had an outstanding team, uh, but I think here with Kyle Shanahan. And uh, and their, their general manager that they have uh, in John Lynch, and they have a great young owner in Jed York, who reminds me so much of Eddie. It's scary, but in any <laughs> event, I, I think they'll go, and I think it, it it's going to take time. Uh, it when Bill Walsh came on, uh, it took three years to right. get there. So hang on. <laughs> hey, how, how tricky is it now, you know, with the Giants you've got Eli Manning's 37 years old uh, there's uh, because they're not winning of course there's people saying you know it's time to move on uh, here in New England you got Tom Brady who's 40 you know, although it doesn't look like he's moving anywhere anytime soon but he's still 40 uh, how tricky is the decision from a front office personnel uh, with a, uh, an aging quarterback when you move on to somebody else well we we went through that here with 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 Joe when Joe had some back injuries and so on, and uh, and uh, thanks to Eddie's effort, uh, we had Steve Young. Right. So, right. but Steve was on the roster, and Joe was uh, had some injuries, and, and we were kind of forced into making the switch and. Uh, and Steve Young came through and won the Super Bowl, and uh, it and it just so happens that we and, and Bill Walsh and, and George Seifert, we were blessed with really outstanding coaches, and we were blessed with an outstanding owner, and we were blessed with a lot of good players. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of good players. You're right, um, John. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You said that. Jed York reminds you a lot, or reminds you so much of a young Eddie DeBartolo. How so? 
I, I think just in, in his, his caring and, and uh, concern about the players and concern about his coaches and trying to, to uh, give them the tools that they need to be successful like Eddie did. Uh, I remember, you know, telling Eddie, I said, uh, we, we need a tight end. It's going to cost some money. He said, don't worry about it. He said, why don't you get two? <laughs> We really only need one, but okay, we'll get there. So, but Chet is like that, and if, and you, uh, that's best illustrated by the fact that uh, Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch six-year contracts. So that gives them time to, to you know, to to reload their roster uh, and have their theories and so on be embedded into the minds of the players who are on the team. John McVeigh, thanks for the time. Always, always enjoy hearing from you. My pleasure. Love you guys. Thank you. Thanks, thanks John. That was former NFL coach and executive John McVeigh. Up next, it's our two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Hold on, guys. I think I see Ed Hockley in the studio. That's the Yep, that's it, all right. And he's telling us to go to the two-minute drills. So, Gooseman, go. If the scruntled Papa John pulls his pizza money out of the NFL in 2018, where will he spend it? On Frank Pepe's Pizza in New Haven. Better pizza, better deal, Frank Pepe's. He's going for the sponsorship. Bocce Ball League. <laughs> Kansas City's veteran pass rusher Tom Bahali says the Cowboys are the best team in the NFL. Are you buying or selling? I'm selling, Goose. They're not even the best team in their division. Both. I'm selling the Cowboys and buying Tamba a trip to the concussion protocol. (laughs) Are you a believer in Kirk Cousins yet? No, sir. Last time I checked Goose, last big game he won was Michigan. Michigan. (laughs) Exactly. What's he won again other than Spartan of the Week? Spartacus. Spartacus. Pete Carroll was sticking with place kicker Blair Walsh, who missed three field goals in Seattle's 17-14 home loss to Redskins. How much patience would you have with Walsh? I'd have a lot, especially if he's related to Bill. I have the patience of Job, especially with a guy who was 13 or 14 until he went awry. Who has the best chance for joining the 2008 Detroit Lions and the NFL's 0-16 club? The Browns or the 49ers? Browns. No clue, no hope. There's one thing you can say about the Cleveland Browns. They have wreckage setter written all over them. If you're Ben McAdoo, you sit Eli Manning. If I'm Ben McAdoo, I sit myself down and write a resume. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it's time to see if the future is on the bench or in the draft, because Eli ain't it. Which quarterback should be of greater concern for the Broncos Sunday, Tom Brady or Brock Osweiler? Brady. Osweiler's not a concern. He's a clipboard waiting to be carried. Osweiler. He destroys from within. Double agent. Bobby Wagner? Robert Wagner? Or Lindsey Wagner? Mrs. Robert Wagner, a.k.a. Natalie Wood. (laughs) Richard Wagner. He was a classic kind of guy. (laughs) Who'd he play for? (laughs) When did third and one become a passing down in the NFL? When offense coordinators started confusing themselves with Thomas Edison. When Bill Walls first said the extended handoff. As Bryant says, his former Cowboys quarterback Tony Romo is a future Hall of Famer. Which Hall of Fame would that be? Broadcasting Hall of Fame. Eastern Illinois Hall of Fame. Maybe. We'd like to thank Willie Anderson, John McVeigh, Jesse Sapolo, and John McLean for joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, thebetalkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us at this time and on this station next week. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.